Hello and welcome to the Loose Spokes Podcast, Episode 3, released on December the 20th of 2019. Uh, I have with me currently Roger Evans, and we're going to get right into the news. Um, Get something out of the way quick with the... CTR Motorsports signing Enzo Lopes and Joey Crown for the 250 SX East. Now, Lopes was with JGR, um, I believe, last year. And he he did some okay finishes. I think he was around the 15th mark. Um, but he came he came over with some, uh, some kind of high hopes and some good finishes elsewhere in the world. And Joey Crown, we spoke of the other day... Uh, he uh, didn't qualify for anything last year, but he's he's a young talent, and he took the 125 two-stroke crown at uh, Red Bull Straight Rhythm, and then won the uh, the 250s in Geneva, uh, Geneva or Paris? Geneva, Geneva. So yeah, it seems like a kind of a a, a good place for these guys to try and show what they can do, you know, Enzo Lopes with a second shot and uh, Joey Crown really showing that those weren't fluke rides. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Well, I think that it'd be great to see what uh, Joey Crown can do. He's He's got to be riding a little bit of a confidence wave here and uh, get into 250 SX East and see how he does. You know, obviously the competition is going to be stiff there, but you know, it'd be fun to see a, a newcomer, a um, to to the big stage anyway uh, come in and see what he can do and gain more and more confidence it's always nice to see guys that that uh maybe you didn't hear about as they were coming through the ranks loretta's etc and have them pop up and do good as they get a little bit older be cool yeah there's there's plenty of uh, stories of, of folks coming in uh you know recently it would be justin cooper yeah, that you know wasn't a a an amateur prodigy that just showed up and you know he finished high school and did all the all the normal stuff and he showed up and started killing it and he's still a, a front runner this season so there's no reason Joey Crown can't uh, you know do the same thing and the fact that he backed up his uh, straight rhythm performance with a Geneva win um, just shows that he's ready for supercross in general with and without turns. Yeah, and he's got something going, you know, and maybe I don't know the whole history behind him, but maybe he's been busy like Justin Cooper was going to college, just getting life going like Joe Average, you know, but on the side, he's racing a little moto. You know, maybe Joey is the same way. He's just living a normal life and never really thought he might be that guy, but maybe he found out this summer he could be. He clearly has the talent, uh, you know, to run with those guys over there when when they're on and they're used to it. Yep, um, is huge. Yeah, and Enzo Lopes is not a not a slouch of a pickup for for that privateer team either. He's still, you know, very young and he does have some experience uh, racing for a factory team at a high level. Mm-hmm. So these are both, I think, really good pickups for for that small team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on, a, on the positive side, maybe, you know, not being on JGR with the maybe the pressures that come along with that, maybe he can kind of relax a little and and uh, do what he's capable of. It just didn't seem like he was able to put it together for one reason or another. You know, I don't know a lot about him, but uh, it just seemed like 
in the beginning hype, he would have done better, but you know, maybe with a less pressure on a on a smaller but still good team, he can uh, up his uh, expectations and performance. As I remember it, um, the story on him when he was uh, coming to show up was that he was doing really well on uh, on the test tracks and practice days, stopwatch nationals, they call it. Mm-hmm. Apparently, he was right there with, you know, uh, the podium kind of guys, you know, not up there with the with the top couple guys that year, but he was up there with, with the RJ Hampshires, you mm. know, pulling really good times and doing 40-minute motos, and he had it. But I think you're right. I think that the pressure affected him negatively in the same way that uh, we kind of watched McAdoo do better arguably on his smart top spike than when he went to the factory teams. He, I felt he was more consistently fast, even though he was just learning the sport. And when he went to these bigger teams, the, the pressure that comes along with it, um, you know, whatever it was, even on a, a, a better Honda, he, he kind of started slipping on his results. Maybe it was fitness cause it was later in the year, mm-hmm. but, um, that it's such a mental game. I mean, <laughs> huge. We hear it all the time. You say it all the time. It's 90% mental. And that yeah, just, yeah, it's not that it isn't physical. It's just that it's that yep. mental. Yep. Yep. You can do it, or I don't think I can do it. That's those are the two choices. Yeah. It can't be. I think I can. I think I can. No. It's I know I can. I know I can. Yeah. I can't get away with yeah, that. And I have to, that one has to throw in there. Yep. And uh, staying on the topic of the 250s, uh, Sexton, Chase Sexton, uh, 2019 East Coast 250 Supercross champion, went and broke his collarbone again. That's the third time this year. Yeah, third time in less than less than 12 months. <laughs> Should be he, old. He broke it him. <laughs> last silly season. He broke it this silly season already. And now he's gone and done it again. And he'll... He'll be healthy and ready, but turns out he was uh, he was going to race West Coast uh, 250 Supercross so that he could hop on a 450 for some East Coast rounds so that he could do more testing and get ready because he's hopping on a 450 full-time for outdoors with HRC. So now it looks like that swap. So it looks like Chase Sexton's going to ride east coast instead of the west coast since the collarbone's going to need time to heal there's no way he'd be ready for a1 on the 250s um and i don't think that should mess up his schedule too bad i think he should be just fine but um i suppose it is kind of a shake-up uh but he'll probably come back at 100 percent. do you think so oh by then yeah because they did surgery and they screwed it together i remember a few years back, Josh Hill broke his collarbone. They screwed it together. I think he missed a week. Yeah, that's crazy. It's like a stub toe to these guys. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. When they screw it together, it won't move. I'm sure it still hurts, but it's not going to move. Yeah, and that's that's the problem. Is it, it getting broke worse or moving so that it won't heal properly? Mm-hmm. 
then he'll just have to go in probably beginning of next silly season, have the plate taken out. They, they seem to be doing that. Yeah, that will probably be after outdoors that they do it. Yeah, next next silly season, next uh, November or so. Mm-hmm. Besides, he's got to take this one out because he's got to be ready. He's got to have the room to put another plate in next year <laughs> when he does it again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, we hope not, but he yeah. is setting quite the precedent. <laughs> yep. It's possible. <laughs> At least he's not breaking his navicular or... or uh, yeah. You know, something anything that, T-Rex related. Yeah, something that'll really hold him back, yes. Yeah. Best injury you can get in the sport. That's that's not great. Mm-hmm. But. So that kind of uh, messes with a lot of other people's thoughts for the Geico Coasts, but uh, it kind of holds them together for me. Because um, with him and uh, J-Mart slated for the east coast Mm -hmm. that leaves uh, there's still a lot of riders to go west and uh i saw written that they were thinking that hunter lawrence was gonna try and go east because um because of he's still recovering from his his injury but Mm -hmm. he'll he'd be ready by a1 Uh, i think he's just trying to get his fitness and stuff back but he'd he'd be okay because at this point it's christian craig and Joe Shimoda kind of has the most experience of those other guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we don't even know if Carson Mumford's racing Supercross yet. You're right. Yep. I don't think that's confirmed. Uh, and Jet. Uh, but, I mean, they could still run Craig and uh, Jet and Joe on the West. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Hunter, if they did that, Hunter Lawrence would be their best bet their strongest guy on the west coast if they put him in um but or they could move uh uh, martin over there you know those are kind of their two top guys between between sexton and jeremy martin that's their kind of the two top guys maybe they'll just swap the two top guys because you gotta have a podium contender you know on each coast just for visibility I've been wondering why they had uh, him on the East Coast at all. All I can assume now is since they planned on putting Sexton West, mm-hmm. they wanted J-Mart running East because, <clears throat> A, they know he's better in that dirt. Mm-hmm. We all know he's better in the East Coast dirt. Right. But if you're going to put Sexton West, obviously you you should split those guys up. They're, they're your strongest riders. Yep. So you split them up, have a good chance on each coast. So if that's the only reason that they were sending him east, because he's recovered, he's fine, he's raced. Oh, yeah. yeah. He was really good at MEC, so. There's no reason he can't do A1. He's not an, he's not an amateur. He's been doing this for years. He's not going to have the nerves, if that's what they were thinking. He's not recovering from an injury. He's just a little bit better on that dirt. But if they're putting sex in east, put J-Mart west. Mm-hmm. Not a super cross specialist but he could he still can do good he's won races you know when races just easily there yeah i'd say put j mart uh christian craig and joe shimoda on the west and then have the lawrence brothers and chase sexton on the east Mm -hmm. and you know if mumford's gonna race he can kind of race either side um and we'll uh 
will just you know play they can play that one by ear but i think that's probably their best bet for um splitting that team up as far as the team concern i agree that's uh it seems like you know our little amateur minds here that that would be a, a best balance for the team to be having good showings on each coast And that's it for kind of 250 updates. Uh, So we'll go into the Hall of Fame inductions uh, that happened earlier this week. I got a couple of of good guys uh, brought in there with some some good stories to them. Uh, You know a lot about, uh, you know, these these old guys. You kind of came up with, with these guys. You've been writing since... Since when? <laughs> 1971. 71. Yeah, yeah that makes so, me old. Were you were you like following um, the the sport at that point? I started. Follow- were you following it before? I started following the sport in probably July of '73 when the the '73 uh, CR250 Elsinore came out. That's kind of what piqued my interest in motorcycles and motorcycle racing. It was at that time because you had had a couple. You had had a, a a bike before that. I mean, everyone had a, a fifty cub or a buddy with a fifty cub. CT seventy, CT seventy, yep. and that's not supposed to be jumped. Is that the one that you broke the frame on? Well, it didn't break, but it did bend enough to where. Eh, foot pegs pretty much drugged the ground when I rode it straight down the road. It had big uh, creases in the uh, top of it. it. was a metal stamped frame. <laughs> and yeah, I got jumped maybe a time or two or 30 or 50 or 100. But that's <laughs> <laughs> what we did. It's how we learned, you know. Uh, the CT70, I couldn't complain. My grandpa bought it for me, $199. Ooh, yeah, fancy. It was in June of 1971. That was my first very own motorcycle. And then uh, your mom nearly bought you a uh, CR250 <laughs> after that, right? <laughs> yep. Back to July, July of 1973, we went into the motorcycle shop and we looked at them. And, and you're 13? <laughs> uh, July of 73, technically, I was 12. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, yeah, we went in there and, and we were looking at him and the salesman was like, well, maybe he shouldn't be riding this. Maybe look at this 125. But we're like, nope, <laughs> we want the 250. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, I could touch the ground. I was, uh, at that age, I was probably 5'10". So, well, I was, I was strong enough, maybe not. But physically, I was tall enough to ride it. I could sit on the bike. And I could put my feet not flat on both uh, sides, but I could tippy-toe both sides, which, hey, you know what? Sit on your brand new bike and see how well you touch on each side. And it's probably tippy-toed a little bit. You are taller than a lot of people that ride 250s today. Yeah. And 250s are way taller today than they were in in the 70s. Exactly. That thing had a 32-inch seat height. Typically, they're like 37, 38 now. And, uh, yeah, we wanted to get that. And, uh, my mom was trying to decide how much trouble she wanted to get in by buying it for me. (laughs) (laughs) 
But you know what? I'm telling you right now, if I'd have got that bike, one or two things would have happened. I would have either got hurt a lot or I'd be a super good rider, super fast. Probably both. And at 11 years old, you got to say, I'm going to be a good rider fast. Mm -hmm. That would have been a game changer for me. Absolute game changer. But you know what? Didn't happen. Cards were dealt. No problem. And so by then you were, you were also following the sport and was that a, uh, every two week, uh, cycle news every one, that you were getting most every of Every week cycle news came out, came in the newspaper Friday, sometimes Saturday came every week. And that gave you, you know, last week's what happened in the last week. I think they printed it on like Tuesday, maybe Wednesday. So it was fairly, you know, new stuff, you know, compared to the internet today. No, it wasn't, but but even magazines back in the day were a couple of months behind. And so at that point, is that still Roger DeCoster winning? Absolutely. Uh, just, a lot of stuff at that point? Just getting started. I uh, uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think he won any 500 world championships until 72, 73, somewhere in there. You know, he kind of took over from Joel Robert and Sylvan Gabor's. So yeah, and so with, with you starting in on following the sport and the top guy being a guy with the same first name, that had to have been some, some, uh, some kind of fun verisimilitude to <laughs> to read that. It would be fun to be the next Roger, but it was Roger E instead of Roger D. But that's all right. You know, we're close. And so you you followed you followed people up and um, so as far as Hall of Fame, uh, they just inducted someone that you certainly would have followed uh, a good amount of their career up through the ranks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ron Lachine started racing in nineteen eighty three. I think he was sixteen years old. First race was a Supercross, and what he won it. The next week was it? That's back when the Supercross, Motocross, kind of mixed in the middle of the year. Uh, the next, very next race in Florida, outdoor, he won it too. Sixteen years old, and that's um, wow. That's I think ten years after Marty Tripes did the same thing uh, with uh, Supercross at sixteen years old, won his first race, Super Bowl, the Motocross. I think that was 1973. So this 83, Ron Lachine won his first few races. He was fat, he was riding Yamahas at the time and uh, didn't take him long. He moved over to Honda and won the 85 Outdoor National Championship. You know, the guy was just super talented right out of the gate. I mean, he didn't have to, you know, these days, these guys, it takes him a while to, get to the front and stay there. But Ron Machine, man, he started racing and at the front and he always did good. Even when he moved to the two fifties, the guy was top five all the time. Super good, super good guy. And, you know, honestly, back in those days, that was way before the Ricky Carmichael training and all that kind of stuff. Um, he was just super natural talent, you know, and his dad, uh, Dick, owns uh, Maxima uh, Oils, and they still sell products today. So these, yeah, that's a name that you see a lot associated with the sport, yeah, actually. Yep, yep. So these guys have been around a long time. 
and have contributed a lot to the sport. You know, Ron Lachine being a 16-year-old kid, man, that makes you a junior in high school, and he's winning nationals and supercrosses, 125 supercrosses. That's pretty impressive. You know, lots of natural talent, lots of natural talent. And, you know, I suppose it didn't hurt that his dad uh, selling products for motocross bikes maybe gave him a little bit of who you know world. Maybe that's how he got on Yamaha at such a young age. Gosh, I think, don't you have to be 18 to to compete? Uh, I I think it's 16, technically, for an AMA um, 16. license. So how old's Jet Lawrence? Is he 16 or is he 18? Well, he would have he started non-AMA. Um but being uh, he's doing why don't you keep going? I'll, I'll I'll look it up while you while you go. Okay, okay. <clears throat> well, uh, yeah, Ron Lachine has done well. He uh, rode for Yamaha. He rode for Honda. He rode for Kawasaki. Just a great guy, and I think he still has a, a good contribution to the sport. I've seen him a couple of times at some of the uh, <clears throat> off-season races that I do at at uh, in Southern California. And just he's just a well-liked guy, super friendly guy, and he's still involved with sport, and he can still get on an old KX500 and rip. Um, but yeah, he's really contributed a lot to the sport, so that's kind of neat. And the other guy that got inducted uh, was Kurt Caselli. Kurt Caselli, a desert racer, who won a ton of races and was, you know, super dedicated to the sport, obviously for himself, but. Uh, others he did a lot and uh, uh it's too bad that he i believe the story was he hit a cow uh at baja at nabaja and you know i'm <laughs> i'm sure it wasn't at 30 miles an hour it's probably 60 plus and it it uh ultimately it took a little time but it did kill him right on the course but you know sometimes you think about stuff and you think well you know Dying doing what you love is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, some people lay in a hospital bed for the last years of their life. Nope, he was ripping down a trail and it was lights out. That's not necessarily such a bad thing. Maybe a bit morbid to think that way, but you know, he put a lot into the sport and and so his wife has kind of kept uh, things alive with the uh, Kirk Caselli Ride Day, which, by the way, is, uh, I believe it's this coming weekend. It's typically the weekend after Thanksgiving weekend, but I think it's this coming weekend um, <clears throat> where they raise money, and I believe they contribute a lot to uh, Road to Recovery from that. And Kirk Caselli has uh, uh, scholarships to... Uh, certain things i don't know don't know whether it's races or what it is i ha- i guess i have to research that but there's a kirk Consilli Consilli foundation that uh, takes care of certain things which is a good thing um yeah foundation is is uh is an important that's that's a great way to uh make a tribute for someone um uh, in in that way yeah and i i did look it up and you uh you can turn pro at 16, but there's a big push to move it up to 18. Uh, and there's actually a lot of push uh, for 
requiring a GED or diploma Mm -hmm. before you can race pro and even people talking about requiring a bachelor's before you can race 450. Ooh, that's kind of a push because where's the time for the bachelor's the, the the high school education i can get on with that's for sure at least a ged but uh most most of these uh training facilities mtf and and uh you know uh the border and, and those sort of places are now putting a lot of time and money into their education because most of these kids don't make it and everyone knows right. that and making sure that they can at least get a decent job and know basic things. I mean, there's a lot of ex racers you could talk to that say that they wish that they would have at least finished their di- their diploma before turning pro because they got hurt or this or that, or their parents spent all their money. You know that these are stories that you know have actually happened in our sport, and so we need to make sure that we protect our athletes you know before during and after they race because if they're going to provide the entertainment you know we do kind of owe it to them to make sure that we don't steal their livelihood away at a at a young age you know they trade a few years of trying to go pro for a much more difficult life later on right just like football these guys you know you can't you know you do kind of have to take that gamble and go all in, but you can't forget that, you know what, uh, even if you have a career to 30 years old or 34 years old, like Chad Reed, you, you have to think beyond that. You absolutely have to. And I, uh, and Kurt Caselli was in his, was in his thirties. He had, he had a very long career in the sport, yeah. but by the time, you know, of his passing, he had, he had kind of diversified into a lot of other things, and there's a lot of a lot of pros that are doing that with Dungey buying into to Geico, um, and you know, people like the Hall of Famers that you see the the current you know future Hall of Famers, I should say, uh, like the Dungies and the Villapotos and such, have spent a lot of time at the end of their careers and now you know, starting regular life, um, building a base and, and having investments because they saw, you know, people like uh, Lachine and, and you know, what happened with David Bailey. Uh, a lot of people, you know, by the age he was when he uh, got hurt, a lot of people that age in Supercross that have had some success own multiple multiple homes in California mm-hmm. and you know rent them out to other racers so they give them a bit of a break but they have a supplemental income there and stuff to fall back on and we have real insurance and um you know for the sport and we've got uh, road to recovery taking care of people like Pike and the Caselli family and you know whoever whoever needs it we've got these safety nets that you know, Lachine wouldn't have back in the day. Right, right. And, he, and you know what? DeCoster didn't have it either, but he stayed in the sport and, you know, probably did better financially after racing than he did before. Yep, yep. Because it was a very small sport when he was winning championships. Yeah. I mean, uh, 
racer x is a is a wonderful website and and you know everyone should uh support the websites that support the sport and they've got a really neat long form interview um telling the story of tutu motorsports Mm -hmm. and at one point in there chad reed is talking about his um his deal with kawasaki in 2009 and it was a two million dollar deal and that's just with kawasaki you know generally these guys get paid a lot more by their outside sponsors than they do their uh their actual uh stuff at that point And, uh, you know, talking about him, him leaving all that money behind made me think, you know, adjusted for inflation, even someone who is running the sport like Roger DeCoster. Mm-hmm. And again, 2009, you know, during the American recession, yes, uh, the beginning of it. So everything had already mm-hmm. come down. So if you want to talk about Ricky in 2006, that's mm-hmm. real money. But even at two million, were Roger DeCoster and and you know the the even up through uh, Hurricane Hannah, were they making that kind of money Not back million. then? No, no, uh, no way. Even when they had the bigger, when they had uh, you know Coors and um, and Marlboro uh, sponsoring, you know, big big tobacco mm, money, Bud Light. Uh, yeah, back when they had had real money sponsors, uh, that there's just no way they were making that yeah. kind of a, no. a profit. I, I don't share. think that I don't know this, but I don't think that they were making over a million dollars until Ricky Carmichael. I really don't. I mean, Jeff Stanton, you know, I I, I just don't see that they were paying him that much. The sport was didn't have enough money in it yet. Do you think any of that had to do with? fmx growing because fmx uh from like 98 to 2004 like right in the gravity games x games uh era you know when they were pioneering the backflips it was it was deegan and it was pastrana and it was it was that whole that whole group of guys um they really elevated dirt bikes to something that everyone knew something about you know jumping the arch at at vegas do you you think that had something to do with the uh the money flowing into supercross and and outdoors for those much higher much higher numbers do you think no that certainly accelerated it It certainly accelerated and enabled it to have you know when they started showing the supercross every race you know live when they were showing them months later, then that didn't do it. When they started showing them live, I think that really, and you know, freestyle definitely helped visibility for any kind of motorcycle, off-road motorcycle stuff, whether it was, you know, Baja, Supercross, Motocross, or just the freestyle jumping. Uh, Freestyle jumping was certainly more of a spectator sport as to where outdoor motocross for instance you know i'll bet a lot of people that watch that actually do it or eat at least get some track time on a practice day supercross yeah that's kind of not obtainable for most of us and you know it may be arena cross at your local indoor track if you live in a northern latitude but i think that you know 
perhaps, you know, guys like Travis Pastrana and Ricky Carmichael, the visibility that they brought is what tended to bring the money. And I think that was the gamble that when the wages went better. So you think TV packages is the biggest yes. reason? Yes, because... Because I remember the the first year that they did uh, live outdoors, um, I simply remember we were you know, up in the Portland area, so we went to the Washougal National uh, most years that we've been up here, uh, especially the last, uh, the last bunch. And it's always... It's always fun to go to that, but I remember the first year that you went, "Hey, look at those! Look at those cameras! They're going to start turning on." And you see the lights come on, and, and uh, start, you know, seeing, "Oh, they're they're doing mm-hmm. this now." And they're holding the start because they had to do some commercials. <laughs> I remember that. That's when they started with that new start that they use today. All right, and before we continue on, uh, David Karstens has joined us uh, finally for episode three. Uh, Roger, you had a th- you had a thought about um, MTF and, and the education. We kind of touched on that. Uh, what was your thought on that? So I remember uh, um, Colleen Millsap, Davy Millsap's mom, uh, owns and Millsap. MTF stands for Millsap's Training Facility down in Georgia. And she, she has emphasized real heavily on getting, getting your high school education. Well, high school years is when these guys try to learn how to be a good writer. And uh, she's emphasized that it's important that part of the day between the training of writing and exercise, et cetera, is uh, working on your high school and getting your high school education each day and i think that's important you know we talked about what are you going to do afterwards and how many of these guys aren't going to make it how many guys go through mtf that we've never even heard their name or there's a another train training facility not too far away just right up the road that trains people and you know how many of them don't make it but they still have to live the rest of their life Anyway, I think that's just an awesome thing that they do down there, making sure that these guys succeed through motocross or not. Yeah, I think that's important that we uh, we, we we address that um, long term. I think you've got the right idea on that. Well, talking about the amateur guys and stuff, it's an important point to uh, keep on top. And uh, next thing we have on the docket is um, Andrew Short at the Dakar. That is, we, we touched on it, uh, I think the first week, but that's, that's coming up and he's, uh, he's looking like he's got a real shot at this, um, because he got fifth last year or this year at the beginning of the year and won his first event ever there in, uh, Morocco. Yeah, he, he really has a chance to at least podium, maybe win the car rally that's a huge deal he's coming right out of the motocross he's won supercross races he's won outdoor motocross races and you know making a huge change yeah you go fast on a motorcycle but not for 20 minutes not for 40 minutes but for days that's just amazing and he as well as he did last year he did the last couple of days with a broken foot 
Um, that's durability and stick to itiveness. And he's supposed to be retired, so the fact that he's, uh, you know, putting so much effort in, you know, even even now that racing through two days of a broken foot, I mean, I suppose he's got to get back to the truck anyway. But <laughs> the fact the fact that he's he he worked so hard to still get fifth, yes, uh, with a broken foot the last two days, yeah. I mean, more than forty miles on the trail seems like days to me. Yeah. Um, I couldn't imagine. Uh, what he's doing there. I think this is his third Dakar rally. And, you know, he's just improved so much each year that he's definitely somebody to consider as having an American and a motocross guy win that. That's pretty cool. Hey, do you think this is a trend? Um, you know, possibly. A lot of the guys have went to GNCCs and, and, and ball halls and stuff like that. Look at Zach Bell. He has made the oh, transition yeah. to that, and he is really just the guy's won several championships now. He's a factory Husqvarna rider. Um, he's way more successful in this arena than he was in motocross. Uh, so, yeah, well, I think I, so. You know, I was when I was reading about the Dakar stuff, at the same time I was reading about the six days, the ISDE, and uh, our win there, yep. and then of course, what three weekends ago or two two weekends ago was the end of the Australian uh, Supercross season, yep. and what was it? Three Americans in the top three. Yep. <laughs> so, yep. I mean, I'm like, I I'm starting to to think that maybe we're experiencing something unique for the era, which is a lot of strong multi-talented american racers yes um because you know for a long time i well for not that long ago um probably near the end of mcgrath's year uh career and then of course uh not ricky but i guess um chad reed and i can't think of the other ones who specialized in supercross it, it seems to me that there's a, a level of strength that's improving in american uh, dirt bike riders and i the only reason i say it is because it this is the the most uh, out of the states wins I could recall reading about. Well, I mean, since the Staten eras and and the the success they were having overseas and the and the GPs in the states. I mean, I it just seems to me it's unusual, stronger than normal. Oh, look at Ryan Sipes. <clears throat> I mean, he oh Sipes, great example. He, yeah, he won the overall. Uh, two years ago at ISDE and then he was part of the team this year that the team that won it and, right and he that guy he's won flat track races tt races off-road races and he'll still come back and do a motocross race that you know there's that versatility and like you say that i think guys are finding ways to extend their careers whether it's zach bell ryan sipes you know of course ricky carmichael he went into the you know to the booth yeah. and right. Emig went into the booth, but you know, um, even Ricky Car or, or Rick Johnson, you know, did a lot of stuff down in Baja uh, after he retired from motocross, supercross. So yeah, these guys are finding ways to extend their careers. And, and I agree there's more Americans starting to do well around the world. Yeah, it does seem like a trend, and it makes me wonder if this is part of the outpouring of the fitness programs that a lot of the writers are involved with now that I, I don't know if that – I know 
I know Ricky uh, really brought a lot of that in. I, I know McGrath couldn't keep up with Ricky, and one of the problems was he didn't have the same fitness program going on, at least not at this, that point in his career. Right. And uh, it, it does seem like more people seem to talk about their fitness programs um, now than I remember hearing about when I first started watching, which, Roger, you, you are the one that got me involved with watching this stuff. And I didn't start watching it until the very beginning of McGrath's career. He was, he had just, in fact, I remember watching him in my early days in his first 125 race when he, well, 250 race when he um, jumped onto the, the the 250 for that one race. And I think it, was he Yamaha? He was riding Hondas at that time because he rode for Peak Honda, you know, Mitch Payton's team as a 125 rider. Yeah. Yeah, right, right. And then he, they, oh, well, hold it. Was it a Kawi 250 then? No, he went to Honda 250 after that till 96. Because Pro Circuit started as a Honda team. Yeah, peak, yeah, it was a peak Honda team is how Pro Circuit started. Well, I was I was trying to remember. I just, that one-off race that he did in, the, in you know, when he, I don't remember why he had a day that he decided to ride 250 and he ended up winning that, his first rookie his first race before he went pro 250, he was pro 125 still. And I can't remember which one it was, but mm-hmm. I, I was remembering watching that. And I, I remember it wasn't McGrath. It was one of the other riders. Uh, wasn't Brock Glover where they were comparing their physical, physical capability to, you know, elite athletes in the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure it was David Bailey who was talking about this, where, you know, they're so highly competitive and they're, they, they could do these fitness endurance tests, you know, that they do like at a doctor's office or at a, at a gym mm-hmm. and beat just about anybody in any other discipline, any other physical discipline. <laughs> so I know it's not a new thing, you know, that, uh, that fitness is a program, but I just think it's reaching deeper down the, the, in, into more people in the industry. And that's what I, I think is influencing people's longevity in racing after they, you know, quit risking their lives on the supercross track. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. I, I just, I, I am one of the things that I'm hoping that I see when I start looking at all the statistics coming out of the vault data is do we actually see um, a different number of people, statistically speaking, uh, more different people in the top 10 than we used to see? I think we are. I think it varies a lot more. Oh, I see what but, you're saying. So you're saying, you know, as far as if you counted up how many people were in the top 10 over the course of a whole season, you know, back in the 80s, was it maybe 15 guys and now maybe it's 30? Right. Exactly. Gotcha. And and, and it can't just be people that, you know, it's got to be somebody that we're seeing repetitively. And I and I think in, in races, not necessarily in top 10, but at least in races in the, over the course of the season, one of the problems that I have when when you reach back pre McGrath era, um, you know there were I think there were just less people. Oh well, actually, what was it? Thirty people per race up until like the late seventies, if I remember right. Oh, in the, the at, class? in the early in the early days. Well, Supercross I don't recall, but in in motocross it was a forty rider game back yeah, in the early yeah, days. And I'm pretty sure I saw as 30 in like all the way from 74 to like, I don't know, 79 or so. So, I mean, so the data starts to not mean as much when I go back too far. So I'm kind of trying to find that cutoff. And it seems like right before McGrath seems to be about where 
the seasons stabilized and they generally speaking started looking very similar um even though maybe little details have changed along the way but i i think we're experiencing a little bit of a change in in motocross in the united states and as much as i've heard about you know it's getting um less profitable for companies to be involved mm -hmm. it does make me wonder if that on the flip side um even though bikes are more expensive that people are healthier <laughs> and, and, and 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 maybe involved more it just something seems to be changing you bring up a good point there and you know what that does is that that opens up more opportunities a guy like joey crown we were talking about earlier you know he can mm. he can come out and he stands a chance because every so many of these guys train and they all train a lot the same you have a good point there which means that that's going to broaden the base of guys that can compete yes are we going to see the same people winning uh the uh the crowns the the, the championships year after year after year like we have been over the last you know 20 years huh. i I think we're not going to see that anymore, at least for a while, for a, a couple more years. I, I I think that's a that's definitely a cool thought because you know when 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 Ricky was winning, you know as soon as he got in the lead, I mean, how many of us went and got a drink? <laughs> you know, yeah, time yeah, to no get another pop or a beer out of the fridge because this is over, you know. But it's not that way anymore, and you're right. No. That's going to tend to get even more competitive. We all like it when we. We, we all have our favorite guy we want to have win, but it is kind of nice when that's not a guarantee. Hmm. Huh. I had not ever looked at that angle before, but I think that's, that's definitely a valid point. There's more guys that have a chance to at least qualify. More, more people physically fit. And, you know, it, all it takes is a bad start or a fall down in the last five laps. Yep. And all of a sudden you've got, you know, the top five or five different people than they were the week before. You know, <laughs> maybe that's an exaggeration. So you have all of a sudden a chance of somebody else winning, I think, a lot more often than it used to be. So. I think that's great. I think that's great. You know, it's funny. I'm thinking back of, you know, the last maybe six years of, you know, you've got the Intignac brothers and, and all those guys that were always doing LCQs. <laughs> right you know what i mean it was kind of the same group of guys yeah. and some of those guys have disappeared and some of them you know uh, uh they qualify more often out of the semis and you don't see them in there mm. huh yeah that's mm. definitely and that's to me that's a positive thing to know that there's oh, more guys that stand a chance yeah no and i i think it it makes uh it, 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 it having more hope for more people. Yep. I think it just it's it should rich and it should rich in our experiences. Yes. What I really hope is that we what we see is the triple crown format actually highlighting this. You know that we've added some new stresses and some equalizing forces on a race night, mm -hmm. and uh, and all of a sudden that person who can do twenty laps all out can't do thirty in broken up in three different parts with three different starts, and I, I think. I, I think that that combination of more fit people and broken up racing is is really going to help with uh, yeah 
equalizing the the evening across for a, a larger group of riders. So yeah, anyway, I, I'm ho- I'm hoping the stat starts to show that this is what's happening, but I have no idea what this is going to turn out to look like. Well, we'll have to think the, the vault one of these days. <laughs> as important as a start is, you know, you can have a guy that's uh, maybe doesn't finish in the top ten all the time, and they get a they get a whole shot or they get top three. And next thing you know, before the race is over, they're getting seventh, you know, because <laughs> passing is hard. That mm-hmm. that's that's a huge experience for these guys. Their best finish ever, and yeah, the, with the triple crown, I do think that's neat. We I watched the I was at the triple crown A two last year, and it was neat because you you didn't see three of the same race. You saw three different races. Yeah, in the end. You know, the top two guys maybe, you know, dominated it. But, you know, from third on back, it really mixes it up. So you could have different winners in different positions and and watch some exciting racing without it negatively, you know, one bad start negatively affecting a championship contender. Yeah, right. In the end. And it does seem to me there are attitude changes as well. I mean, I remember watching... um, uh, what's our green rider's name? God, I can't believe I, I, I keep wanting to say Jeff Ebbing. Who, who's our number one contender this year? Jeff Tomac. Eli Tomac. Yeah, Tomac. Thank you. I, I'm calling him number one. Um, I remember. Oh, Adam's number with, one. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That'll be very interesting to see him crash out on five of the races this year. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Adam. <laughs> so I hope he does it. I really love that guy. He, but he's he he's he will end up doing good. This will be an interesting year for him. Yeah, it will be. Um, do you remember when uh, Tomac, um, which which European racer came over and did one motocross with us? Hurlings. And, yes, and remember how um, Eli backed off on that? Yep. What was it? The last two laps. Yep. And I thought to myself, he changed. He he has adjusted his approach to racing. He's ready to be a champion in the sense that he doesn't have to win every race and he doesn't have to prove anybody that he's bigger than they are. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, I I think that change uh, is kind of indicative, I think. I remember listening to a couple of the amateurs coming up talk about wanting to be like Dungey. And the thing that they said was his consistency. And I and I have a suspicion that this whole you know being physically fit and not not needing to be the fastest guy, I mean like Hannah, shit, he couldn't he couldn't participate without saying that he was the fastest guy. Mm-hmm. So and, and he 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 would break his neck in order to be the fastest guy. <laughs> yeah, so, and then he would break everybody else's neck in the process too, and he was very. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think that attitude was not prevalent. I mean, David Bailey didn't have that attitude, but I think a lot of other people did. And um, I don't think that the racers coming up have that same kind of idea on how to be a professional. And I and I do think it's changing the game. I, I think it's I, I think it's going to be itching to see what happens. Having said that, I would really love to see a, a, another Hannah come out and. <laughs> kick butt but i don't know i don't think we're gonna see it not for a while <laughs> <laughs> no bob hannah is like, definitely he certainly was a one-of-a-kind guy yeah 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 i don't know anyway i i'm i uh, i was really excited to finally get this data 
brought down and, and pushed into a database so I can start crunching numbers on I'll I'll be sure to be bringing numbers to our next uh, our next uh, little episodes here coming up. What is it? Because uh, you said you you wrote your own program to uh, to to play with the numbers a bit. Well, the, so the trick is, um, anytime you want to do a statistical analysis on data, you got to bring it into a database system. So um, even though this is absolutely the vault data, 100%, I was able to take the data and put it into a basic irrational database system, so that I can easily query the data, just really quickly get numbers, and then so once you start doing that, then you start. Um, you know, you you could probably have to rich the data a little bit. Their their data actually isn't very expansive in the sense that it includes other influencing factors. Like for instance, there's no way to find out why somebody DNF'd, or that they, that they that they led twenty you know, eighteen laps and didn't lead the last two. That data has to come from a different source. So um, I'm going to have to take the data that came out of the vault and enrich it a bit to really do any deep analysis. But there's a lot of shallow analysis we can do, like, for instance, um, just the simple counts of top ones, twos, threes, fours, number of different riders in the top 10 from week to week. And then you start taking this data and you start looking at it aggregately, comparing year by year or maybe five years by five years or maybe you know, we could identify race uh, when the when the baton switched hands. You know, went from from I, who did it go to after Ricky? Would you say it went to Chad Reed or James Stewart? <laughs> after Ricky, I'd say James Stewart. Yeah, I would think so too. Yeah, and so I mean, we we can look at these eras and actually try to compare the kind of statistics that is coming out of each era to see if there was really a change. And I, and I I think we will see that some of that that change comes out pretty easily. And one of it will be the number of competitive riders in each era. And I just think the number of competitive riders is, I think a lot of people talk about this seems to be more than it. There's less spread than there used to be from rider, at least amongst the top five riders. I want to go back to something real quick. Would you guys consider uh, James Stewart had his own era? Cause as far as I'm concerned, it was, Two, two years more of a more of a flash in the pan and and if you want to go from one person that dominated to the next real dominating force i think you go right to villapoto james stewart won a lot on his 125 he did have an undefeated season in 2008 on the 450 but that was it and he won the supercross in 09 i believe but you know he didn't have yeah, Chad. Chad was very much a uh, a spoiler to him. He never Absolutely. really had, yes. never really had it in the same way that Villapoto and Carmichael yeah. had. Everyone covered for more than two years. I agree. I think that's domination is at least three years where everyone's watching the races, going who's getting second. Yeah. Yeah. I think James was fast in the Carmichael era. Yeah. He was still. E- almost as fast and then he had a couple of years where he was fast mm-hmm. but then like before he could really build a, a castle i think villapoto started beating him mm-hmm. and the whole time he was fighting off chad reed i don't think i think you go mcgrath carmichael villapoto dungy yeah, i yep. i don't I do think too. you can give him in the same way you can't give one to you know anderson wasn't dominant uh cooper webb hasn't been dominant mm-hmm. Uh, Cooper Webb won uh, a lot of outdoors in the 250s, but I wouldn't call it an era any more than I would call um, uh, Jeremy Martin 
a two two fifty era because he also didn't have the indoors. Mm-hmm. So I think as far as uh, again we're we're kind of splitting hairs, but I I feel that an era is at least three years where it's who can beat this guy, and I think that this should be Eli Tomek's era, but he hasn't he hasn't quite closed the deal. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to be, he's going to have the same problem as Stewart where it's going to be, well, it wasn't a foregone conclusion, maybe race to race, Mm -hmm. but championships, maybe. And and, you know, does that go back to what Dave brought up about? There's more guys. Well, it depends on if someone else comes out and starts, um, you know, destroying the field. Um, You know, if, if we start finding another person, that does that or not? I, I, you know, in the pipeline, not just week now, to week, but season to season. In the pipeline now, there's really nobody that's going to do that. I mean, Tomac has the should have the highest chance of winning the most races. So should Roxon. So should Cincerello. You know, there's there's uh, I can count on more than one hand as, as many people as if you came to me and you said I'm from the future five years down the line, this person wins the next five indoor and outdoor in a row. Gosh. There are people I could believe. I could believe Cincerillo doing that. I could believe Webb doing that. I could believe um, Sexton doing that. Yeah. I yeah. could believe Forkner doing that. There are people that if you came and you said, this is what's going to happen, I go, okay, I could see that happening. Uh-huh. But at the same time, we've had different winners indoor and outdoor you know, for the last few years, I mean, we went Dungey and then Tomac and then Webb and Anderson, and we've had parody, true parody, mm-hmm. where we haven't usually been seeing that in the last 20 years. Uh, let me challenge you a little bit on one of your. So, okay, James Stewart has the second most supercross wins, period. Mm-hmm. If you combine yes. two, 125 and 250, there's no way that we can not consider him and obviously a, an amazing racer. But when we talk about eras, I, I do think you're right. There's a, there is a dis- difference when we talk about long running careers, and I do think that that influences the statistics a, a little bit because who James Stewart raced against was very different from who Jeremy McGrath raced against and even Ricky Carmichael as far as a number of individual people that he was challenged by. I mean, I, I, think, I, I think there is definitely – an, a, a difference when you consider uh, who a person competed against, and maybe that's the best measure of an era. And maybe one of the interesting statistics will be number of individual people one racer competed against. Like if we took every race that James Stewart raced in and looked at the distinct number of people involved in each race, I'll bet you the number of people he's raced against is a third of what uh, Carmichael ever raced against. And oh. probably a tenth of what Jeremy McGrath raced against, as far as number of people that he beat, hmm. that might be an interesting statistic to look at. <laughs> well, that's true. We'd have to throw Kevin Windham into that one. <laughs> oh, Great point. Okay, down okay. into all of those. I just did a little quick uh, stat dump. So uh, Kevin Windham in Supercross overall wins one twenty-five and two fifty combined is eighth. Eli Tomac is right above him. Dungey right above him, then Reed, Villapoto, Carmichael, Stewart, McGrath. So Kevin Winham in the top 10, eighth. Eighth. That's, yeah, eighth in overall wins, 125 and 250 combined. But he raced against. That's 250 and 450 combined? Yeah, all, all the, the entire pro career. 
And that, okay. that poor guy is as fast and consistent as he was. He raced against Jeremy Regrath, yes. Ricky Carmichael, James Stewart, and Ryan Villapoto. <laughs> Great point. Great point. <laughs> Context means so much when you're t- when you're talking statistics. Yeah. I think I think that's kind of what you're getting at, and I it think is. you're absolutely right. Okay, so let me. So here's your uh, stats for all across the entire professional clear that you placed in first, second, or third. Chad Reed's number one at 140. Most podiums. Yeah, most podiums in your career. Jeremy McGrath 134, and this is just Supercross. Jeremy McGrath, 134, so second. Dungey, 118. Carmichael, 100. Stewart, 97. Kevin Winham, 93. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that is, he, he's up there with those big boys, man. Like, who's who's directly below him? Morocco. Morocco. <laughs> well, he raced till he was 90. <laughs> <laughs> he raced so many years. Now, there's a person who probably has the most individuals that he's ever raced against that guy was freaking around forever yeah 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 and, and chad reed you know yeah, chad point, reed's yeah. at the at the top of the heat there no doubt i'll tell you what look looking at uh racer x's own um uh 450 supercross all-time wins if you they they also have number of championships mm-hmm. and um you know all-time wins is of course uh like up up there but we we mentioned wyndham Wyndham is third for most wins without a championship in Supercross. <laughs> third uh, above third. Can can you guys name who's above yeah, them? I'm trying to imagine. Well, Eli Tomac for starters. Yep, he is. He is the most wins with no championships. Oh no, Supercross championships. Yeah, yeah Supercross. Yeah, okay, sorry, yeah. Huh? Yeah, he has the most. Yeah, that would make sense. Damon Bradshaw, maybe. Yes, sir. I got it. You got oh him. wow! <laughs> he was just one off of uh, Bradshaw. Bradshaw has 19 overall uh, big bike wins with no championships in Supercross. Wow. Wyndham has 18. Oh boy! <laughs> poor poor Tomax at 27 wins <laughs> with no championships. Well, is this the year? That's two full seasons almost. I, I what are we, you... 30, 34 races for two seasons. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I don't. I as much as I'd like for to see Eli win, I I, I would not place all of my money on him. But I, I would I would split it between him and a couple other racers, though. <laughs> yeah, I tell you what, I I would like to go over and uh, let's go ahead and uh, let's let's do this real quick. Uh, so Roger and I last two uh, weeks have gone over the team guides. Oh yeah. Uh, so we went through all the teams, all the riders, and we built, we built uh, 250 and 450. We kind of built uh, initial um, season predictions for first, second, and third, hmm. and then a dark horse. Well, um, so, now that we got Dungey heading up Geico, yeah. I'm pretty sure that that's going to be the team to look for. So. <laughs> well. <laughs> So in 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 four fifties right now, Roger has uh, Tomac uh-huh. winning the uh, four fifty championship, Roxon coming in second, and Cincerillo in third in the championship. I don't even have. And then he has Anderson. You know, this as a dark is going to be disappointing to, to hear. Maybe spoil that. I don't even have Roxon in my top three. I just I just realized that he I oh, I, wow. I am really concerned about his injuries. And uh, 
Didn't he get second in the outdoors with some and type I of just Epstein bar? That Epstein last bar. Of course, we, you know, I think we all kind of get a feeling for where that comes from. It's somebody working really hard <laughs> to try to be a champion. Um, and if you think about, I, I'm trying to, who was the last big time racer that got, so Chad had Epstein bar once. And that was kind of around the time he started to be a top five guy. Well, that was that was uh, he last had it in two thousand and nine oh. when he quit Kawasaki. We we addressed um, that in the that was in the long form um, recently. So yeah, he said he had yeah. Epstein Barr uh, in two thousand and nine, well, and we've seen it take I out think a lot we are of racers. Seeing indicators um, that Roxanne I mean, injuries are going to be impossible to fully overcome. And that's that's my feeling. I think that last year may have been all he had. Hmm. Well, then I'm going to be in big trouble because I've got him winning the championship <laughs> this year. <laughs> okay, so let me ask you guys this. Does what happened in Aust- Australia mean anything? Because before I give you my answers, I want to know what you guys think about that. Why don't you go first, Dad? Justin Brayton? is good in these off-season races, and he has tons of confidence, four-time champion in, in Australia. He does really good, but, you know, when the season starts, he's definitely more in the groove than the rest of the guys. He gets a lot of, you know, fourth and fifth and third and stuff like that, but as the season wears on, he kind of burns out a little bit and tends to, you know, get, you know, between fifth and tenth, he still ends up placing good because the guy's super consistent. You know, as far as Jason Anderson didn't beat him in any of the off-season races, which kind of surprises me a little bit. Um, he beat him in some events, but as far as overall, I don't think he beat him in any of them. So hold on, I thought Anderson won one of the Australian. He won the first Not night, overall, but uh, yeah. that didn't give him the overall. Him the overall. And, and he did talk about some of the difficulties he was having down there. I, but yeah, I, I guess I, Roger, I hear you very tentatively saying it doesn't mean anything compared to Supercross. Yeah, because the competition's different. You know, Justin Brayton is a good rider. He's, you know, I, I don't want to take anything away from him. He's a great guy. He's really mm-hmm. done well. And I think he's done super smart for his uh, for his career and financially to do what he's done. These guys probably got more money than most of the guys that have already retired that won multiple championships. But he's just a tick off of you know the guys like like you know Rocks and Tomac, Luscan when he's out there, Cooper Webb. He's just a tick off of these guys. Of course, at his age, you know, maybe that has something to do with it. But that's kind of my take on the off-season Australia, Europe stuff. Um, same thing with, uh, you know, Malcolm Stewart, I think, honestly, will do better in the Supercross series than mm-hmm. he did in these off-season stuff. Yeah. yeah, he seems to rise. He seems to pick up his game, I think. Yeah. Okay, so putting me as far as for who I use, well, I do have Jason in second. 
You guys are going to laugh at me when I tell you I've gotten for the first. Whole, for the whole I got season. Osborne in first. Because I do think we're in an era of changes, and I have to call Mac third. I, just, I, I have a suspicion Tomac is going to cave mm-hmm. on a couple races and will blow away. He'll get seven wins and two DNFs <laughs> or two twelfths, uh-huh. and that'll be the end of that. And, and I, but I do I think that um, we saw um, oh. we saw yeah. Osborne yeah. overcome a problem that he had last season, and I do think with what's been going on down at uh, at um, in Florida, at, what's his name's camp? Uh, yeah, Baker Factory. I have a suspicion with um, what's his name out. Jeez, Baker I'm doing Factory. great. Name Muscan out that the uh, Husqvarna guys are getting a little bit, and I have a suspicion that, uh, because if I understand correctly, um, Osborne actually been to uh, to race, uh, to, to be um, warming up this whole offseason where he didn't get that chance last year, and Anderson has been there, and I think those two together are going to raise Osborne's game. So, anyway, so I have, I have actually Osborne's as kicking it in, coming out of the factory, recognizing every single championship in the last how many years has come out of Baker's factory? Mm. So I look mm. at that team first, and I would take Osborne over Anderson. And I actually would take an Osborne even over Muscan. So, anyway, that's where I'm coming from. I would to see Justin Hill be a top right. five. I don't think it happens. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. You know, it, it, well, I could be wrong. I could be way off. I did horrible Rand, at the Randy gave me a hard time so I when I, I made my picks. Anything, and I I goes, you didn't put take anybody from Baker's Factory, and they've been winning all the championships. So you know, you're you're what you're saying. I absolutely cannot sit here and say you're wrong because you could be right. Absolutely could be right. No, you're you're. Your predict, your predictions are absolutely possible. I mean, absolutely possible. That that definitely could happen. This is what I love about this season yeah. is all three of us have completely different lineups, and we all look and go, "Oh yeah, sure, yeah, yep, that'll work." Okay, got a question for you guys. Do you know if Sin Cirillo and Tomac are actually practicing together? I don't think he practices with any. I no. think Tomac practices with no one, and I know Cincerillo practices with Roxon and uh, Sexton. That's correct, and and That's Tomac right. practices with Jeremy Martin, he, or yeah. at least he used to. Does he, he still? He still does. They, Jeremy Martin went I back because he asked him if he could come back, and his mom says, "Yep, you're in." I. I don't know. Eli is such a freaking loner. I, I just I don't think that's a strength. And, I agree. Um, I, I don't, I, and I and I think it it does probably hurt him a little bit. Although it was pretty cool to watch Sabachi give him a hand the last couple seasons. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, not, and Grant too, right? Sabachi and Grant both have kind of given him a hand the last couple of seasons. So I don't know. Yep. I I, yep. I think that those two people, if they would, if they would practice together, I would have actually picked those two, um, in in the top in the top three for sure. But because they don't, mm-hmm. I think it's a, it's weaker. I think I just think that yes, the consistency uh, that we see coming out of Baker's factory is going to be the difference. 
So I was I was looking through, and I'm not sure when Villapoto uh, started working with uh, right with right. the with the Baker Factory because it was before it was the Baker Factory. But he's been winning since '11, and assuming he was working with uh, with Baker since then, then it's been eight years that we've had uh, every Supercross winner uh, since then has been working with with him oh yeah but i think i mean it not it wasn't it ricky who worked with him first but i don't think dungy was working with him in 2010 no no i mean be, be, i think ricky carmichael worked with uh with him as well so he did work with alden but i mean in in a, in a row but yeah oh in a row because we had a break with um with james yeah no hold it no, hold it. Didn't James work with him too? Yes, he did. Yeah. I'm pretty sure we're stretching back 15 years. <laughs> well, Chad won in 2008 and he's never worked with him. Yeah, that's a good point. Although so at, did... at the at the at the most at the most only 11 straight oh, uh, only 11. Yeah, that's freaking amazing. Uh, that guy's got to just be loving. I, I, I love how the comment that um, Roxon made once when he when he said that uh, Baker doesn't know what he's doing. When it, well, no, it was when he told Adam Ectic Knapp, hey, now, you know why it's working better because now you're working with somebody who knows what they're doing. <laughs> he, he, he made this kind of off comment. I was thinking to myself, that is freaking youth and ignorance talking yeah. and mostly youth, just youth. Actually, I won't say he's ignorant, but man, youth. Yeah. <laughs> That's just the numbers not yeah. matching up. Yeah, that's... no doubt. <laughs> well, I anyway. So that's where that's where I'm coming from. I'm looking at that team out of all the teams. I think is strong, <clears throat> and because I believe we're in this era of strength over balls, um, I'm I'm going to believe that that's going to make the difference. So, so Osborne, first. Anderson, Tomac yep. for your picks. That's my, that's my top three. Who's the dark horse? Uh, Christian Craig. <laughs> oh. I, okay, is he going to even be in shape for A1? Because I heard he's going to do it. But is he racing 250s? Oh, is that what's happening? Yeah, Craig, Craig's, oh, Craig's who on who Geico. I thinking about? Who just came back from their, um, their, their uh, the WADA release them? Yeah, it's Craig, right? Yeah, that's yeah, well, I didn't Craig. know that he yeah. was, I thought he was coming yes. back because he was on 450s last. He he was filling in uh and four fifties two years ago when he uh ate the dirt at Glen Halen. And I didn't know that they're bringing him back to two fifty. Yeah. That's well he he was back there last yeah. year. It's still the same question. Is he gonna be ready for this? I, I think he's gonna I think he's gonna get fortieth on his first race. <laughs> <laughs> he's been he's been practicing and training. Um because even though he he was pretty sure that he uh was going to get it overturned. He was pretty confident. Um, I don't know where that confidence came from, but he, he says he's uh, in shape and ready to, and ready to go. Um, now that he, now that he can, I'm not sure if he planned on being in shape for, you know, late East coast races, if he's in that good a shape or not. But even last season he was fighting a thumb injury, but yeah, he didn't bring home very good results anyway. He's, He's a kind of a favorite guy of mine just because our 
kids are the same age and, and, you know, watching his stuff on YouTube, it's just someone <clears> I can uh, connect with a little bit. He did, did some nine to five stuff and he's an interesting guy, but I I don't think he'll have the same speed he did against Cooper and Savage. Yeah, uh, he's definitely uh, Cooper Webb he's, and Savage for sure. Yeah, but he can still get you know. T- yeah, but in the two fifty doesn't really matter. <laughs> he'll kidding. put the bike out there and he'll get good heat race uh, so finishes. My, my dark horse for you would be uh, uh, Rock, yeah. uh, Eli's teammate. So who would your four fifty dark love. horse be then? Thank you. Yeah, that that's the guy from. Steve Zerillo. That is the only name that's on everybody's <laughs> list. I mean, the, the reason I consider him a dark horse is because we've seen this so many times before where that rookie takes, you know, a good couple years to get their stuff in order if they don't have it in order that first year. And, and I don't think he had it all in order that first year. And I don't know if it was just the shock factor of going into the big bikes or, or I mean, he wasn't as strong physically as he looks now when he first came in he looked like a freaking stick yeah and now he looks like he has some body mass so i think he grew up i think he's stronger and uh but you know that's a that's a huge change and uh and i i wouldn't be surprised if he wins but he's not i don't think he'll i don't think he's gonna be in the top three at the end of the season so anyway so but he'd be my dark horse Okay, well you can you can rip my picks apart because I got Ken Roxon and then Cooper Webb and then Eli Tomac. I don't think Coop has that that mix of he he's strong, he's short. That's he's, a good thing. He's Baker Factory. <laughs> he mm-hmm. is. I just don't for some odd reason, and and this is probably going to be because I don't know how to read people very well. He never seemed to me to care. Well, he did give up smoking <laughs> after his second championship. I think that's for me. God, I didn't know that. Is that really true? That's true. There, smoking, there are pictures of him smoking okay. between motos on the 250s. That's ridiculous. There's some natural talent. Championship season. Well, man, I, if that's true, I mean, I might have to adjust my opinion because <laughs> smoking, that is that changes everything. So... so what do you think Jet Lawrence is going to do when he stops eating donuts? <laughs> I am so looking forward to seeing what he can do. And that was a great interview about him and that uh, that donut company down there in Australia. I, that guy is going to rip it up. I am so looking forward to seeing him. And he's going to win. This year, he's going to win. He's going to get a championship. If he doesn't, he will be winning very soon and for yeah, a totally long agree. time. That guy has got talent, man. That was so cool watching him race in Australia. It was amazing. <clears throat> Have we seen anything with him in the States? Has he done a States race? Okay. I didn't know if he did like a one-off or something. No. Wait. Wait, didn't he do the last few I nationals with Joe Shimoda and, <laughs> and he might have Mumford. done the last one? <clears throat> yeah, he did. He did oh, some right. some of the last nationals, that. last three or four, because uh, his yeah his brother got hurt and didn't do a couple of the last ones, but Jet did do them. They all did one together. Um, the first national that they could do after Loretta's. Uh, and then um, 
can't remember the older brother's name. Lawrence. Um, there's oh, Hunter Lawrence? Hunter got hurt, Hunter. and so he yeah. sat out a couple races, maybe even all the rest of the outdoor races. But Jet did, you know, two or three of the last four. And, I'm doing my search. And one of them, he <laughs> finished like seventh in a moto. Oh, okay. That's interesting. I would have, well, I don't see, I don't know. What is he? Eight, 17, right? Okay. So he was at least at Unadilla and Bud's Creek. I have him down at a, in uh, eight races total. Eight? Yeah. Man, I, I missed the most uh, about the, I missed the second two thirds of the um, outdoors this year. So I, I bummed that oh, I missed on, that because I was following Hunter no, quite a bit. This, this is different. This is Jared, Jared Brown. His name is Jared Jet Brown. Sorry, wrong Jet. Wrong Jet. Okay. <laughs> I don't have him down for any Supercross. That's my problem. I'm looking at Supercross only right now. <clears throat> yeah, these were outdoor motocross that these guys did. Right. And you know I could be wrong. When I when I search his name, those are the two races that uh, that he's mentioned okay. in. So he's at least in those ones. Gotcha. Huh. Yeah, I I know he did some at the same time that uh, Shimoda and Mumford were out there. Yeah, and if he did Unadilla and Bud's Creek, then that means that he did um, Ironman mm-hmm. also. Mm-hmm. And he just wasn't mentioned in. Um, and you know articles. what? It might be Hunter that got seventh in one of those races. Wait, Hunter led for a, yeah. in one of the races. Hunter did way better than seventh. He's got yeah, podiums okay. already. So maybe Jet did get like a seventh, and he did uh, pretty good. Yeah. But I mean, sixteen years old. Yeah, right? this guy's gonna rip it up. I just. Yeah. But even Hunter says it, and Hunter looked fantastic. So I'm. Yeah, this is gonna be very cool to watch. I. It's gonna. You know what? And riders know that riders know when their competition is going to be faster because I remember um, uh, Jeremy Martin talking about, "Hey, watch this Cooper Webb kid who's coming up. It's it's not Cincerillo. It's it's this kid." As as he was joining their ranks uh, with a three digit number, and then a few years later, um, I remember uh, <clears throat> Cooper Webb standing on the podium with Aaron Plessinger when he was one five seven. Um, and Plessinger just won his first moto or podium, just first moto. And, uh, and he said to the camera, he said, he said, this guy is really fast. And, you know, like he's right on me at the test track. And this is when he was winning outdoor championships. And he pointed to Plessinger, he said, this guy is fast. And, um, that's what Roxon said about, uh, Sexton, uh, in, uh, this time last year. And he said, this Sexton, he's got the strength he's got the determination he's championship material he said that last year and what did he do he went out and he won the championship so i think riders have a great insight as to how other riders are going to do they just because they're there and they're around them you know i'm glad you mentioned plessinger there's only one reason why barsha and plessinger aren't on my top five because they're on a yamaha (laughs) i knew it Oh my god, I just fell for both of those guys, man. Oh jeez. It's you know, Ferrandis and Cooper can do and and even Colt Nichols and McElrath. I mean, geez. Well hold it, McElrath was on KTM last year, right? So Nope. 
No, was he nope. on Young? He, he's on. He's on Young. Well, now, now he is, but last year yeah. wasn't he KTM? <clears throat> Yeah. yeah, last year so, was. So, yeah. so Ferrandis and Cooper and Nichols were all Yamaha last year, right? Yeah. Right. So those, I mean, and we did see those guys up front, and obviously Ferrandis, what was, did he just, I can't remember, did he win last year or did he just lose again? <laughs> no, he won the win. Yeah, well, that's what Cern Ferrillo did, and then Ferrandis won. That's right. That's right. That's right. I remember that now. So I don't know. The 125s, they seem to have something put there. Or 250s uh, seem to have something put together a bit. I don't know, man. I'm so tired of seeing Barsha look beat up at the end of every race. I just I feel for the guy, man. <laughs> oh, yeah, the thing. he It's funny. He rings, that, he rings its neck. He rings the 450s neck, but it just it, – I think that's probably not what that bike needs to do, but oh that's God. me. And Can you imagine you know, his arms, what they must feel like after a race like that? I just can't imagine. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. You know, and he's not a big guy either, so that bike's bigger than he oh, is. Oh, jeez. Huh. Okay. Well, I suggest you, when do you guys have any Yamahas in your top five even? Oh, I think I think that when it came to the two the two fifty yeah, class, 250. I think that uh, I uh, Fernandez I so. will repeat. <clears throat> I think what we decided last week was that uh, for some reason, uh, KTM and Yamaha are absolute opposites. Where everyone wants to be on the KTM four fifty, but the mm-hmm. KTM two fifty can't seem to get a championship at all and the yamahas it's the 250 everyone wants it but no one wants to touch the 450 yamaha that's a great great uh, that's a great observation i think that's <laughs> dead on too jeez but uh let's let's go ahead and get your 250 picks because we're running uh close to time uh, i haven't thought about um, 250 so I, i'm doing a quick scan of the uh, of the riders teams here let me see if i can pick somebody out well, no, I gotta say Jet. Uh, Jet Jet's Jet's my number one pick for sure. Wow. So Jet Lawrence is gonna win his what? What is he? I don't even know if he's east or west. I don't think it matters. <laughs> we were we were kind of guessing because we we know a few things. Like we know that Jmart and Sexton are supposed to be east coast, and Ferrandis is going to go okay, west speaking coast. Speaking of Jmart, what about Alex? Is he gonna be? Yeah, I'm not gonna even. Yeah, he's gonna be top ten, but I don't know. You know what? He's still gonna do. He's. I don't think he's a. He'll get some podiums. I've got Amart as third overall on the East Coast. Oh, he is doing two fifties. Amart. Yeah. Yeah. Both Martins are are running. Um, are thought, are running two fifties still? I thought Alex was going to four fifties, or because he rode four fifties. What is it? Two years ago, right? One of the two did. Jeremy, uh, Jeremy, Jeremy Martin was did. he was supposed to go 450s and then he had his first uh injury and they're like well we're going to give him another oh. shot to to win the 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 250 championship and then that's when he got hurt bad and so it's been it's been a while and now he's up for 250 <laughs> indoor and outdoor uh this year All right well I can't figure out how to, so are we doing uh, how are we doing this because if we got east and west I don't know who's on east and who's on west yeah, so we I, just kind of took guesses. Um, yeah. So let me let me read you off ours so you can kind of get an idea what what we were thinking. Yeah. Uh, Rogers got West Coast for Ferrandis, and then Smith, and then Cooper. Oh, interesting! Smith in second. Hmm. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, Smith, but, Smith, he he went to Pro Circuit. He's not on a bad bike, and he's definitely oh, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, he's got a lot. There. He's keep. He can definitely get that based on the equipment he's on and, the, you know, he's carried the red plate a lot. Yeah. Okay. And then on the East Coast, he's got uh, Forkner winning the East Coast, uh, Sexton getting second, and then Jeremy Martin behind them. And then he's got Jet Lawrence as a as a spoiler, okay. like someone who could, who could upset one of those. <laughs> All right. I don't know how I'm going to pull this off, but... Uh... I've got Ferrandis on the, winning the West, uh, followed by Justin Cooper, and then I think Fortner's mm. going to go West. Uh, I think they're going to they're going to mix him up. I forget my reasoning behind that, but I think he'll he'll still struggle against those Yamahas because that's going to be a really strong uh, set over there. And then I've got the East Coast. I've got uh, Sexton defending his title. Jeremy Martin coming in at second and having a really good uh, indoor, and then his brother Amart behind him on the east, which is counting out so many good guys. Now I've got Hunter Lawrence as a spoiler in one of those coasts. Hey, is Davos four fifty? Yes, four fifty KTM. Ketter. Ketter, yeah. Uh, well, for for sure, uh, uh, Fernandez. Uh, yeah, he's gonna. So if he's against Jet, then I guess Jet will be in second. Um, yeah, or you can I'm have doing. him winning the uh, East Coast against yeah. Sexton uh, and Jeremy Martin. Um, yeah, definitely uh, on the East. Then, oh, it's so much harder after that. Yeah, I, I'd probably, I'd probably stick Smith on the top three. Although I, I put him in third. And yeah, that's interesting that there's nobody that I'm picking up in two fifties. What's wrong with that? Hmm. <laughs> uh, God, I don't know. I I don't know if I can pick more than that and feel like I'm doing anything other than filling in a blank line. I'm gonna have to do a little more research. Just start naming Yamahas, and you'll probably be right. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. We got we got one more, and we'll we'll adjust these because we'll know the coasts. Uh, we're gonna take next week off because uh, the recording day would be Christmas Day, so clearly. Um, but we'll be back New Year's Day to or yeah New Year's Day, uh, and we'll we'll record kind of a, a leading up to a one because uh that'll be that'll be the following weekend so we'll we'll come in we'll we'll adjust some of these for coasts and uh you know kind of give some thoughts on the track layout and and such Thank you for listening to the Loose Spokes podcast. A special thanks for Jahazer for the use of their song, The Last Ones, under the Attribution Share Alike license.